Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 27 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm the moderator of today's program. It is now my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Father Gregory Boyle. In 1986, at the age of 32, Greg Boyle arrived at Dolores Mission in Los Angeles, the youngest pastor in the Los Angeles Archdiocese, and an unlikely candidate to become the gang priest. He grew up in Los Angeles, one of eight children in a third-generation Irish-American family. His high school years were spent at a Jesuit-run boys' school during a time of inspiring activism when his teachers led peace marches protesting the Vietnam War and Jesuits made news across the country for their support of liberation theology, a movement that combined social justice and spiritual renewal. After high school, he joined the Jesuit order and spent 13 years in religious training. In 1984, he was ordained a priest and he moved to Bolivia, where his work with the poorest of the poor changed his life forever. After Bolivia, he was assigned to the Dolores Mission Church in East Los Angeles, an area with the highest concentration of gang activity in the city and perhaps in the country. He spent many difficult years gaining the trust and confidence of both parishioners and gang members, but his efforts eventually bore fruit. He founded Jobs for a Future, Homeboy Industries, and countless other centers and services committed to counteracting the violence and hopelessness facing young people in his community. The legacy of his efforts can be summed up in the simple words of a mother from his parish. Father Greg is right. Gang members are not the enemy. They are our children. And if we don't help them, no one will. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Father Gregory Boyle. Thank you very much and good afternoon. It's a, indeed a privilege to be here. Um, I'm traveling with David and Miko, both employees at Homeboy Industries. Maybe you'll get a chance to meet them afterwards. It's the privilege of my life to know them. And the countless uh, homies and homegirls who find their way to Homeboy Industries, uh, a homie like Hector, 17 years old, a uh, young man who dropped out of school for about four years. I got him back into school and he started to discover uh, how smart he was once he was in my office and uh, we were having a conversation and he said, you know, I uh, ran into this man who attended one of your talks once. I said, really? He goes, yes. He found your talk rather monotonous. <laughs> so my gosh, um, he did? Well, no, actually that didn't happen, but I need practice using bigger words, he says. <laughs> so, I asked him to practice on somebody else. Uh, 20 years ago, I arrived at uh, Dolores Mission, the poorest parish in the city of Los Angeles, and uh, two housing projects, the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. We had eight gangs, half of them at war with the other half. I buried my first young person killed because of gang violence in uh, 1988. I buried my 157th uh, two weeks ago. 
And we did a lot of things. We started a school as a response. That was the first thing we did. And then a jobs program. And we tried to find felony-friendly employers, which was a challenge. And, and uh, then we started our own businesses because we couldn't find enough people willing to employ gang members. And we started with Homeboy Bakery. And then uh, with uh, a couple months later, Homeboy Tortillas. And once we had two businesses, we called it the highfalutin name, Homeboy Industries. Um, we had a lot of starts and stops, a lot of failures. Homeboy plumbing didn't go so well. <laughs> <clears throat> Who knew that gang members uh, weren't that welcome in people's homes, you know? And, uh, um, and then we just uh, did a lot of things that responding to concrete needs. You know, we are now the largest gang intervention rehab center in the U.S. of A. A, a thousand folks a month walk through our doors looking for help. Uh, location of gainful employment with our job developers. Free tattoo removal, um, two laser machines, 10 doctors, 4,000 uh, laser treatments a year, uh, huge counseling staff, eight counselors uh, who do therapy, including a, a psychiatrist, legal services. And now we have five uh, full-blown businesses, Homeboy Silkscreen, Homeboy uh, Merchandise, uh, Homeboy Bakery, Homeboy Maintenance, and Homegirl Cafe where for two years, uh, women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude will gladly take your orders if you <laughs> find your way uh, to LA. There's a common vision that I think joins us all together here uh, this afternoon. It's a vision of trying to make the world look somewhat differently than it currently looks. I wanna suggest to you that the overarching goal for all of us in our effort to deal with this despair called gang violence is to create a community of kinship such that God might recognize it. The prophet Habakkuk writes, the vision still has its time, presses on to fulfillment, and it will not disappoint. And if it delays, wait for it. But nobody wants to wait with your arms crossed and tapping your feet and staring at your watches. You wanna make things happen. And, and what I wanna suggest is this sense of kinship, a sense that there is no us and them, there's just us, only been us. That there are no demons out there, that we wanna seek this kind of sense of kinship uh, where there is no daylight that really separates us. I'm in 25 different detention facilities where I say mass on uh, Catholic services on a regular basis in uh, jails and juvenile halls and probation camps. And at the end of the services, I always you know, hand out my card to the gathered mainly gang members, because there are 1,100 gangs in LA County, 86,000 gang members, and lots of them are locked up. And so I always say, call me as soon as you get out. Don't delay. If you delay in calling me, you're gonna get popped again. You'll be right back here. Call me, we'll take off your tattoos, we'll find you a job, we'll hire you in one of our businesses. Call me right away. And once I was in my office and there was this gang member named Louie, 17 years old, happier in a clam, big huge smile on his face. And he says, here I am. I just got out yesterday. And you are the very first person I came to see. And never in my life had I seen more hickeys on a human being than on this guy, Louie. <laughs> All over his neck, on his cheeks, it was just unbelievable. And I said, Louie, I have a feeling I was your second stop. <laughs> well, we howled with laughter and, and suddenly there's kinship so quickly. It's not about service provider or service recipient. It's about 
us belonging to each other. Mother Teresa used to diagnose the world's ills, I think, correctly by suggesting that the problem, of course, in the world is that we've just forgotten that we belong to each other. And so we, together, as a city, choose to stand against forgetting. And to that end, we imagine a circle of compassion, and then we imagine nobody standing outside that circle. And so we stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless, with those whose dignity has been denied. We stand with the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized because we want the demonizing to stop. We stand with the disposable because we long for the day when we stop throwing people away. For an idea has taken root in the world, it's at the root of all that's wrong with it, and here it is. It's the idea that there are lives out there that matter less than other lives. So how do we stand against that idea and promote a sense of kinship that's deep and palpable? I guess I never felt a sense of kinship more keenly than in my own life. For the last three years, I struggled um, with cancer and went through chemotherapy, had leukemia. Or as one of the homies said to me uh, not long ago, I hear your cancer's in intermission. And apparently it has stepped out to the lobby to buy popcorn, so. Uh. <laughs> but this was announced on the front page of the LA Times, and so word spread, and homies and homegirls, uh, thousands of them really came out of the woodworks, and, and it was quite moving, you know, they, they would say things, and now it's our turn to take care of you. And I remember there was this huge guy named Grumpy, a huge six foot four, a bunch of tattoos. Apparently God had forgotten to give him a neck. And he's standing in front of me in my office with big tears in his eyes. And he says, what do I have that you need? You know, meaning organs, you know. Um, really happy to tell him I didn't need any of his organs, you know. And uh, one of my favorites was a homie who called uh, from jail, Collect. Um, his name was Robert, we called him Loco, and he had just read this in the LA Times, and, and he said, hey, what's up with this leukemia anyway? I said, well, it's cancer, it's in the blood, you know, the doctor says my white count's too high. <laughs> Them doctors, they don't be knowing nothing. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, hello, course your white count's high. <laughs> You white! So I, if I just accept more collect calls from jail and call it a second opinion. But suddenly there's, there's kinship so quickly. I remember uh, a homie uh, named Carlos stepped into my office. He was 24 years old, had just been released from Corcoran State Prison. Uh, apparently I had met him when he was 14 years old. Uh, at Juvenile Hall, and first thing, of course, the homies always say, do you remember me? Of course, it had been 10 years. Uh, he was a little kid at 14. Now he's a full-grown man and, and unrecognizable, really, just out of prison two days, and he's all sleeved out, covered with uh, gang tattoos on his arms. Uh, his neck is blackened with uh, tattoos, head shaved, which is typical of Latino gang members, covered with alarming tattoos, but most alarming of all, though nicely done, were these two blackened devil's horns on his forehead. And he looked at me and he says, you know, I am having a hard time finding a job. <laughs> and 
And I would say, well, you know, maybe, maybe we could put our heads together on this one, you know? And so I'm about to nudge him towards our tattoo removal program. And, and he says, you know, I've never had a job in my life. I was a kid when I got arrested. And I said, well, why don't we change that? And this was a Monday afternoon. So I send him to our homeboy silkscreen factory, which is our biggest business. Nearly 500 rival enemy gang members have worked side by side there in the last 10 years. So we have 2,000 customers. Uh, they hit a million dollars in sales last year. Um, high quality work, reasonably priced. We uh, UPS to the Twin Cities. <laughs> so uh, I send him there and, and he begins to work on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I call the silkscreen and I, I call the receptionist and I say, hey, send that new guy with the devil's horns, Carlos, bring him to the phone. So Carlos comes to the phone and, and I say, hey, how's it feel to be a working man? He says, it feels proper. Yeah, I'm holding my head up high. In fact, I'm like that guy on the commercial, you know, the one who walks up to total strangers and says, I just lowered my cholesterol. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, that's me right there. I go, I'm, boy, I'm sorry, Carlos, that just went right over my head. Well, yesterday he says, I, I, I'm after work and I'm dirty and I'm tired. I'm sitting at the back of the bus. I couldn't help myself. I kept turning to total strangers. I'm just coming back, my first day on the job. Just got off, first day at work. Of course, I'm imagining the people on the bus, you know, kind of wondering, are mothers clutching their kids a little more closely, you know? And certainly people are listening to him, and I suspect somebody's thinking, good for you. But I can't help but think that there has to be somebody there who's saying to himself, what a waste of a perfectly good job. The prophet Isaiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. And isn't this the task of every city to make those voices heard? And so the circle of compassion widens a little and people are included more. If kinship was our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice. I suspect we'd be celebrating it. For no kinship, no justice. No kinship, no peace. How do we achieve a kind of compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it? I think our task really simply is to become what the child psychologist Alice Miller calls enlightened witnesses, people who through our kindness and tenderness and focused attentive love return people to themselves. It's not about holding the bar up and asking anybody to measure up, it's simply about showing up. And then you hold the mirror up, you say here's the truth of who you are. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And so you watch people become that truth. You watch them inhabit that truth. And no bullet can pierce that. No four prison walls can keep that out. And death can't touch it because it is that huge. I remember as a kid hearing uh, the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. 
Yeah, it's about Jesus. Yeah, it's about Christmas. But how is it not the job description of everybody in these cities to appear and souls feel their worth? That's what kinship and the mentoring program here, which is so valuable, is all about. It's not about supplying of information. It's about appearing souls feel their worth exactly what God had in mind. I remember uh, on a Friday afternoon, I had gotten a phone call from a homie I hadn't heard from in many years. Uh, no news is usually good news with gang members if you don't hear from them. And it was a kid named Bandit, and we used to always call him Bandit. He was well-named. He was a knucklehead, gang member, selling drugs, and doing in and out of being locked up, impervious to my help. I remember for lots of years, I, he just uh, said, no thanks. Until one day, 15 years ago, he shows up in my office, and I can't believe he's there. And I said, wow, you're here. He says, yeah, I'm tired of being tired. So I walk him to a job developer, and as luck would have it, they, they locate a, an entry-level, unskilled first job for him in a warehouse. Now cut to 15 years later, Bandit is running that warehouse. Uh, he's the supervisor. He is married. He owns his own home. He's got three kids. So he calls me uh, on a Friday afternoon, a little bit panicked in his voice, and he says, gee, you got to bless my daughter. I said, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Is she sick? Is she in the hospital? Oh, no, no. On Sunday, she's going to Humboldt College. Imagine, my oldest is going to college. But she's just a little chaparita, a little tiny thing, and I'm scared for her, and could you give her a blessing? I said, sure. Uh, I have baptisms tomorrow at 1. Why don't you come to the church at 1230 and, and just... On, on, on time, the uh, bandit and his wife and the three kids appear the next day. And I said, well, we situate them in front of the altar and, and we put little tiny Jessica in the middle, 18 years old, headed to college. And I said, let's encircle her and you know, put your hands on her head and everybody touch her and close your eyes and bow your heads. And as the homies would say, I, I, I do some long ass prayer. You know, I go on and on. And, <laughs> And somewhere in the middle of this prayer, I'm noticing we're all chillones, we're all starting to cry, and we're all crying, and I don't really know exactly why we're crying, except for the fact that Bandit and his wife don't know anybody who's ever gone to college except me. Certainly nobody in either of their families. So, you know, we kind of wipe the tears, and we kind of laugh at how silly and mushy we got, and so I look at, at Jessica, and, and, and I said, so, what are you going to study at Humboldt College? And she was very quick, forensic psychology. I go, damn, forensic psychology? And Bandit chimes in, yeah, she wants to study the criminal mind. <laughs> and Jessica, very deadpan, she looks at her father and does one of these where she starts to point at him, you know, and, and he sees her and he laughs. And he says, yeah, I'm going to be her first subject. We go out to the car and we say our goodbye and big abrazos and everybody piles in the car, but Bandit hangs back. I say, mijo, can I tell you something? He said, sure. I give you credit for the man you've chosen to become. I'm proud of you. And he says, sabes que? I'm proud of myself. All my life, people called me a low life. 
El bueno para nada, good for nothing. I guess I showed him. I said, yeah, I guess you did. And the soul feels its worth. Gang violence is about a lethal absence of hope until you appear and the soul feels its worth. No kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's always fleeing something till you appear and the soul feels its worth. None of us have ever met a hopeful kid who joined a gang. And we could change that in a heartbeat. A couple years ago, we had Laura Bush come and visit us at uh, Homeboy uh, uh, Silkscreen. In her capacity as gang czar, she was traveling around the country. And, uh, and she was visiting after-school programs and mentoring programs. And, um, and she came to visit at Homeboy Silkscreen. And as you can imagine, it was quite the um, you know Secret Service uh, orama. It was uh, you know two weeks of uh, scrutiny and uh, bomb sniffing dogs and sharpshooters on the roof of, of all the adjoining buildings on the day of her visit. And and uh, uh, two weeks before, the Secret Service guy came to me and he said, "Father, uh, I need a list of anybody who's going to shake hands with Mrs. Bush." Uh, birth dates, social security numbers, and we'd isolated to about 30 workers and some people would be part of, because we have 257 employees, I couldn't let them all in, so I made a list, handed it to the Secret Service guy, and uh, you know, some days later he came to me looking quite severe. Ah, oh, Father, wow. Um, yeah, these people have records, he says to me, you know. Like this news might come as a surprise to me. And uh, I said, well, at Homeboy Industries, it's sort of the idea. You know, we kind of have people with records working here. So anyway, the visit came off uh, without a hitch. And then uh, cut to uh, several months later, a staffer from Laura Bush's office uh, calls me and she says, uh, uh, Mrs. Bush is having a conference in Washington, D.C. called Helping America's Youth. Uh, she'd like you to speak at this all-day conference at Howard University. I said, sure. And the staffer said, oh, by the way, um, the first lady would like you to bring three homies with you. <laughs> now, whether Laura Bush actually used the word homie, I, I'm, I'm not certain, but, uh, and, and she said, and afterwards, there'll be a select group who will be invited into the White House for dinner. Now, certainly crooks have resided in this house before, but I think it... <laughs> uh, <clears throat> might be the first time gang members have stepped in there. So, um, so I, you know, if you were to call central casting and, and uh, say, please send me three menacing looking gang members, it would have been the three that I chose to go with me to the White House, uh, Gus, Gabriel, and Herbie. And, you know, they're older guys, tattooed, been to prison, working for me in a variety of our businesses. And of course, you know, you can't exactly wear size 85 waist dickies to the White House for dinner. So. I, you know, uh, we had to get suits. So we went to Men's Warehouse. Do you have that here in the Twin City? You're gonna like the way you look. I guarantee it, yeah. Yeah, that guy wasn't there, but. Uh, <clears throat> so we walk into the Burbank Men's Warehouse and I swear to you, every salesperson rushed us at the door as if to say, how may we help you walk out of our store as quickly as possible? I said, we're, uh, we're gonna be needing three suits here. You know, we're, 
going to the White House for dinner. <laughs> and the guy said, yeah, right, okay, sure. So they dispatch him to dressing rooms, and I'm out there selecting ties, and at one point I turn and I see one of our group, a, a homie named Gabriel. Gabriel's 25 years old. Um, he's standing in front of a six-sided mirror. He's in a suit for the first time in his life. His mouth is wide open. He's staring at the guy in the suit in the mirror all by himself. Now, Gabriel's been to prison, in and out, gang member, of course, covered with tattoos. He's already had 37 laser treatments. He needs just 95 more, and then they'll be gone. <laughs> but he's just covered with them. Uh, married, has three kids. Um, he does a lot of things in my office. Principally, he's a tour guide, so if you go there, uh, he'll give you the tour. You know, he'll greet you at the door and then introduce you to our job developers and uh, explain our release program, and he'll uh, introduce you to the counselors. He'll hand you goggles so you can watch tattoos being removed on the premises. He'll show you the bakery from a window overlooking the bakery. He'll take you to the homegirl cafe. Gabriel has the finest heart of just about any human being I've ever met. The day won't ever come when my heart is more pure or I am more noble or I have more courage or I am closer to God than Gabriel. So I walk up to him and I tap him on the shoulder. He doesn't take his eyes away from the guy in the mirror in the suit. Are you okay? He says, damn, gee, I'm already pinching myself. Like he can't believe he's in a suit. Can't believe he's headed to the White House. A week before we're scheduled to leave, I asked him for no particular reason. I said, by the way, did you get permission from your parole officer to go to the White House? Oh, yeah, I asked her, yeah. I said, Phew, good. He said, she said no. <laughs> I go, how are you getting around to telling me this one week before we're scheduled to go? I was afraid you wouldn't let me go. So I get her on the phone, and this is all she says to me. No, high control, meaning he's high control parole. We, we can't uh, have him leave. I said, could I talk to your supervisor? And that person says the same thing. No, high control. Could I talk to somebody a notch ahead of you? And that person says, no, high control. They all seem to be having a bad case of, and Gabriel, who exactly would you be that you get to go to the White House? Finally, faxes and faxes from the White House. Finally, we secure permission the day before we were scheduled to leave. We were going to go anyway, but permission is nice, you know. <laughs> so the day of leaving, you know, they're all late, and uh, I get halfway to the airport, and, you know, one of them has forgotten their driver's license. We have to go back, and we find out two days later on the day that uh, Gabriel is to wear his suit, um, that poor guy, as he's running to the car in the early morning darkness, he has his bag slung over one shoulder. He has his men wear, mer, uh, men's warehouse suit on the other shoulder, covered in plastic, open at the bottom. And as he's running, the movement jostles the pants, and they slither off the hanger, and they fall in the gutter or the sidewalk, and some homeless man is liking the way he looks, I guarantee it. <laughs> so we discover that he has no pants, and so... Uh, we borrow some from my brother who lives in D.C. Anyway, we walk into the White House, and there these three guys are in their suits, and they're in the hallway has butlers with trays of white wine, and, and uh, 
the homies are snatching those puppies up as fast as they can, and there's string quartets and combos in every room. It's just elegant. There's a buffet, the likes of which I've never seen in my life, just gourmet uh, rack of lamb that was just perfection. I went back three times. Uh, you know, a, a salmon the size of a small Buick. I mean, it was unbelievable. They, they had these white potatoes cut lengthwise with a hole bore out in the middle stuffed with caviar and a sprig of chive. And I'm standing there and Gabriel pops that sucker in his mouth and spits it out in a napkin. This shit tastes nasty, he says. Was it me or did the Secret Service lunge ever so slightly at that moment, you know? So anyway, I told you all that to tell you this. We fly home the next day and we're somewhere uh, in the middle of the country and Gabriel says, I gotta go to the baño, I gotta go to the bathroom. 45 minutes later, he comes back. And I said, my gosh, where were you? I thought you fell in, que paso? I'm very innocent. Oh, I was just talking to that lady back there. And I turn around and I see the flight attendant standing by herself at the back of the plane. And Gabriel says, I made her cry. I hope that's okay. I go, well, it would depend on what you actually said to her, you know. And Well, you know, she saw my tattoos and, and she saw my homeboy industry shirt. And I don't know, she asked me a gang of questions. So I gave her a tour of the office. At 30,000 feet, Gabriel walks this woman through the office, introduces her to the job developers and hands her goggles so she can watch tattoos being removed. And then I told her last night, we made history. For the first time in the history of this country, three gang members walked into the White House. We had dinner there. I told her the food tasted nasty. And she cried. I said, well, Michael, what you expect? She just caught a glimpse of you. She saw that you are somebody. She recognized you as the shape of God's heart. People sometimes cry when they see that. and two souls feeling their worth, exactly what God had in mind, suddenly kinship, no us and them, it's just us. Last story and I'll, I'll let you ask me questions. Uh, something that people ask me all the time is about gang members, uh, enemies working side by side with each other and we've had thousands and currently 257 who are doing exactly that. They always say, you know, I'll work with him, his, their enemy or rival, but I, I won't talk to him, which used to bother me until I discovered, of course, that you can't demonize people you know. And once I walked a gang member named Youngster into our silkscreen factory, and he was from a gang called Primera Flats, and I'm introducing him to all the workers on the floor of our factory, and he's shaking hands with everybody, including enemies, and I think, wow, that's great. Until he gets to a kid named Puppet from Clarence Street Locals, and the two of them mumble something. They stare at their feet, they don't shake hands. Of course, I know they're enemies, but he just finished shaking hands with other enemies. I find out later 
that this is a hatred that's quite deep and, and they don't think they can get beyond it. I sense that at the moment and I say, you know, if you guys can't hang working with each other, just let me know. I've got a whole slew of people who would love this job and they say nothing. Seven months later, Puppet is returning home from a, a trip to the corner market to buy a gallon of milk for his mom. As a shortcut, he cuts through an alley. Suddenly, he's surrounded by 10 rivals from an enemy gang, 10 against one. They beat him badly. He falls to the ground, and while he's lying there, they will not stop kicking his head until he lies there lifeless. Somebody finds him and takes him to White Memorial Hospital where he's uh, declared effectively brain dead, kept connected to machines for 48 hours as family members gathered. I was at St. Louis University giving a talk. I flew home. I've seen a lot of horrible things in my life, nothing to compare to the sight of this young man with his head swollen many, many times its size. It was horrifying. I anointed him and, and said a blessing prayer. They disconnected him, and a week later I buried him. But in the first 24 hours, I'm sitting at my office at 8.30 at night, and I get a, a lone phone call. It's from Youngster, Puppet's co-worker at the Silkscreen factory. He says, hey, that's messed up about what happened to Puppet. I said, yeah, it is. And he says, is there anything I can do? Can I give you my blood? And we both fall silent under the weight of it. And finally, he breaks the silence, choking back his tears. And he says with great deliberation, he was not my enemy. He was my friend. We worked together. Souls feeling their worth, discovering the truth of who they are, exactly what God had in mind when God made them. No bullet can pierce that. No four prison walls can keep that out. And of course there are things that are worse than death and not knowing that truth happens to be one of them. As you as a city attempt to address this issue, be prepared. People will say to you that your efforts are a waste of time. But in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. Make those voices heard. For the vision still has its time, presses on to fulfillment, and it will not disappoint. And if it delays, we can wait for it. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Greg Boyle. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Father Gregory Boyle. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank Kinship of Greater Minneapolis, co-sponsor of today's forum, and the Curtis L. Carlson Family Foundation for their special support of this event. We invite you to join us for the next Town Hall Forum on Thursday, November 15, when our guest speaker will be musician Branford Marsalis. Additional information is available online at eWestminster.org. And now, Greg Boyle, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with the kinds of support you receive from the city, the government agencies of the city. Can you name some of those that were helpful or perhaps some that got in the way of your work? Uh, well, Homeboy Industries has now been around for two decades. So the first 10 years, not so much, you know, not so much support. And uh, I think there was the, the Middle Eastern dictum of the friend of our enemy is our enemy. So if you've successfully demonized the gang member, then you're going to demonize the person who seeks to kind of help and redirect their lives. Uh, last 10 years have been a different story. We just opened our fourth headquarters, moved from 3,000 square feet to 21,000 square feet. And, uh, you know, every politician and his mother were there for this event. So they were falling over themselves, which is quite a different uh, story from the, the first initial years. Um, but, you know, having said that, we, we kind of uh, shy away from the public uh, entity funds, you know, city, state, feds, county. Uh, you know, we prefer individuals who kind of get what we're doing and, and support what we're doing. And uh, because too many strings attached often to uh, public money, um, I don't suspect that they know very much about what to do. And yet here they are, they're offering to give you money and they want you to become what they think you should become. And, you know, I always wrestle with them a little bit. I say, well, you don't really know very much. We've been doing this for two decades. We're happy to take your money. We are unhappy to become something that we're not in order to get your money. So um, sometimes they give it and sometimes they don't. But, uh, um, but by and large now the city and, and even law enforcement, I, certainly the, the higher ups uh, uh, don't demonize me like they used to in my early years. Are you working for change around the laws that prohibit felony voting in America? If felons could vote, they would be back in society faster, would they not? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I agree with that. I mean, I certainly would hope that that law would change, but on a, on a, a scale of one to 10, it's not in my top 10. You know, we prepare inmates in California for nothing. Nothing awaits them when they are returned to the community. We've lost our right to be surprised that California has the highest recidivism rate in the country. Uh, I'd much rather change those things that in the end uh, are more immediate and more dire and uh, more likely to kind of change the outlook of a prisoner or a gang member trying to redirect their lives. The hardest sell is to get an employer willing to uh, hire one of our folks. You didn't say much about the parents or families of the gang members that you're involved with. Do parents make a difference? Are they involved? What can families do to help in contacting or living with their children? Well, obviously parents are essential. And, um, but my program is a rehab center. It's, for, it's not for uh, gang members who need help. It's for those who want it. Uh, so it's an intervention program in the, in the sense that it's 
they've already joined gangs, they've already engaged in criminality, they've already been locked up. In terms of parents, they're sort of, no, they're there. They're kind of beyond parents. Uh, obviously, you want to, if, if I ran a prevention program, I would be saying more about how we help parents uh, to prevent. Uh, I, I do, there are about 90 things that a city has to do. I, I'm just one of the 90. I think it's an essential thing. It's an important thing, otherwise I wouldn't do it. But it's decidedly an intervention piece. It's for those 14 to 25 and beyond who have regrettably gotten into a, a gang, and now what do you do? So um, uh, programs like kinship and, and other prevention programs more, are more suited to be dealing with uh, parents. But we, we tend to blame the parents. And, you know, um, in the end, you know, our, if our diagnosis is bad, how can our treatment plan be good? This isn't about kids who just aren't scared enough. This is about kids who just aren't hopeful enough. Uh, gang violence is the urban poor's version of teenage suicide. It's how they act out that kind of self-destructive urge. Uh, if a young person can't imagine a future for himself or herself, then their present isn't very compelling. And if your present doesn't compel you, then you won't care whether you inflict harm and you won't care whether you duck to get out of harm's way. I can't imagine a single person in, in this city who couldn't do something effective in helping turning this around and infusing a kid with a sense of hope, a, a kid for whom that hope is foreign. I heard that the police don't like you over there in California. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, I want to know that too. Oh, I'm, I've had a checkered past on that, you know. Again, uh, fortunately now the leadership, the sheriff and the chief of police are my buddies. And, but a lot of that stuff doesn't trickle down. I think they're very smart. They're very sophisticated about a crime. Uh, you're always doomed if you demonize. There are two things you have to avoid as a city. One is the demonization of the gang member. There are no demons anywhere. You can be relieved at this news. And the other thing is, is the romanticizing of the gang. And, and those are the two pendulums that you want to, you want to avoid. Uh, you want to come to terms with the truth of what a gang member is, but also with what a gang is. And so uh, this is difficult sometimes in a world where people want to wear white hats and black hats and get the bad guy seems to be the informal motto of a lot of law enforcement entities, at least in Los Angeles. That's not a very sophisticated take. On, on what gangs are about. Again, kids aren't seeking anything when they join a gang. They're always fleeing something, so if you can address what they're fleeing, you've really done something spectacular. Your work, as you've described it, is primarily with Latino gang, gang members. Uh, do you work with African-American youth as well? Yes, men, women, uh, Bloods, Crips, uh, African-American gang members. Um, it began very specifically in a community that had eight gangs, one African-American set, a Crip set, and then seven Latino gangs. And then we moved to our second location where we were just, we didn't intend to do it, but we were dealing with 60 gangs and 10,000 gang members. Almost all were Latino. So there we were in this community and so the folks who came to us. Then by our third location, we were really serving members of nearly 600 gangs in LA County. And uh, this is the most uh, ethnically diverse we've ever been is, is at the current moment. Only because we don't recruit. You have to kind of want help and you have to come and see us. In the same way, the model is sort of like drug rehab. 
you have to, it takes what it takes for you to walk right into uh, recovery. But I, I'm happy to say we're really quite diverse at the moment. You repeatedly use the word kinship in your remarks. Is kinship another word for equality? And does the gang member use of the word homie or homeboy have a kinship connection? Yeah, I, I think, you know, gangs are bastions of conditional love, and what you want to create is a community of kinship that represents really unconditional love, that can somehow stand for the no matter whatness of God. No matter what, uh, the day won't ever come when we withdraw help or support or love. Uh, that's a promise we keep, not just a promise we make. Now, having said that, I fired any number of homies, you know, because if you hang, bang, or slang, you get fired. If you kick it with your homies, if you're selling drugs of any kind, if you're engaged in provocative gang-banging activity from writing on the walls at the low end and shooting people at the high end, with all due respect and love, I fire you, you know. And, and that's okay. That's not the opposite of, uh, uh, of unconditional love. It's just clear. We'll always help you come back when you're ready, in the same way you'd ask a person to leave your drug rehab if they were smoking crystal meth. No hard feelings, this isn't personal, come back when you're ready. So kinship really is a, a larger thing. Uh, in 19th century medical history, you know, doctors were staring at these diseases over here and they applied everything they knew to apply and nothing seemed to work to eradicate these diseases until suddenly, inadvertently over here, somebody addressed the water supply and the sewer system and magically these diseases disappeared and it was because they were about something else. And the thing with gang violence is to find the something else. Gang violence is always about something else. It's almost always about a lethal absence of hope. But injustice just means you don't have kinship and lack of peace means the absence of kinship. So if you seek to build a sense of kinship in your community where there is no them, there's just us, and you stand against forgetting that we belong to each other, then stuff will work itself out. The goal, if our goals are tiny, our gains will be tiny. The goal can't be the eradication of bullets flying. That's like an oncologist telling the lung cancer patient, give me six months and I'll get rid of your cough. It'll work, but it won't help. The patient's gonna die because you've fixated on the wrong thing. The goal is healthy communities. And if that's your goal, the violence will work itself out. What about schools, teachers? What can they do to help in the urban situations with young people? Again, you know, schools are, are, are in the prevention category, it seems to me, because just about every single uh, gang member who walks through my door, uh, you know, dropped out of school in the ninth grade or the 10th grade. They rediscover the need to educate themselves, but um, I don't want to say the schools failed them, but most of them have had such bad experiences in schools. It's one of the reasons why there was this gravitational push into the gang. And obviously, uh, schools need to be responsive and to be attentive to the kid who's starting to move away. But that's a preventive uh, measure as opposed to what I deal with, name, uh, mainly gang members who have already 
had a failing experience uh, with their education. In your many years of work with, working with gangs, what kinds of changes have you seen? Are they becoming more violent? Are more girls involved? Other kinds of differences you've seen? Well, national statistics will th say that w women, females, have, have come in contact more with the law than in the past. But again, uh, females represent somewhere in the 5% range of the overall gang uh, population. Uh, I lived through a decade of death, which was 88 to 98, hitting the highest nearly 1,000 gang-related homicides in L.A. County in 1992. We've cut that in half and then, and then some. Um, that's still horrific, but it's progress. Uh, I think we won't ever return to that period again. And it's mainly because complexity is meeting complexity for the first time in Los Angeles, the gang capital of the world. Uh, this is an enormously complex social dilemma. You need to be reverent for its complexity. And if you meet it with a, uh, a, a complex set of solutions, chances are you're going to do right by this issue. You know of other cities that have similar programs to the one you've built in L.A.? Have you been working with other cities to establish such programs? We get a lot of cities that inquire and want us, you know, set up homeboy industries here or there in London and Tucson and Milwaukee, and, and we're not that interested in becoming the McDonald's of gang intervention programs, you know, over a billion homeboys served, you know. and um, So... But we ask people to come and visit and steal anything they'd like, you know, because part of the reason why I think our program worked is because it was born from below, from a specific community, and kind of had a, a, a Los Angeles sort of cast to it. A lot of things won't work as well here, or it'll be different. And so we encourage people to come and visit and steal everything but our logo and our motto, and start something in your own city that, that sort of has the same elements. Can you comment on your own vocation as a priest and how that interacts with your work with gangs and how your superiors feel about your work with gangs? Oh, my superiors are delighted about my work with gangs at the moment. They weren't in the beginning days, but that always happens, you know. You don't take these things personally. Uh, you know, it's a part of the air you breathe. Is how, how can you um, stand with the folks on the margins and the people whose dignity has been denied and... and and you know that that's where the joy is. You know, you want to stand out at the margins because the hope is that by standing there, the margins themselves will get erased. That's what my vocation feels like to me, and to do that as a Jesuit in the Society of Jesus with the charism of Ignatius. And so I want to stand out at the margins because I know by standing there, uh, the margins will get more surely erased than by yelling at the powers to be to erase them. And so it feels like the strategy of Jesus to me. It's exactly what he did. Uh, he touched lepers for a reason. And he stood with the people who were uh, marginalized and uh, rejected for a reason. Because in the end, he knew by standing there, people would notice. Of course, they killed him. But they noticed what he was doing and where he was standing. And that's how you topple sinful social structures is by standing in the right place with the people on the margins. Thank you, Father Gregory Boyle.